And then it was just the done thing. Everyone was doing it. Oh my gosh, I've got to rush for this. I've got to do this. I've got to get onto that. And ended up in this position that ultimately left me like looking out this beautiful view of the city, very high up in 101 Collins, just being like, what the fuck? How did I get to be in this position? This is not what I imagined for myself. And I'm so happy that having left that degree, I'm in a job that has nothing to do with that. I'm in a job that I'm deeply passionate about. That was Morgan Kergel, CEO of One Girl, an organization on a mission to educate one million girls across the developing world. And my name is the Sangasthan of Ratna, and this is Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. To kick off season one, Yasnaji and I sat down with Morgan to discuss finding your passion, the challenges of running a charity, the corporate versus not-for-profit space, working in prisons, and most importantly, One Girl's mission to educate one million girls. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Morgan Kergel. I am the CEO of One Girl, which is an organization on a mission to educate one million girls across the developing world. And straight up, that is my passion. I am deeply, seriously passionate about women's equality and education as the vehicle to create change. Cool. So where did the passion for education come from? That's kind of a diverse one. I mean, quite easily, I've had every educational opportunity in the world available to me that not only was I sent to a really good school from a young age, but I have two degrees. I studied at the University of Melbourne and did my Bachelor of Arts there and then a Juris Doctor in Laws. But it wasn't really until I had the opportunity to meet people who didn't have the same education as me that I fully appreciated that education. So I ended up working in prisons for two years while I was doing my law degree at the University of Melbourne. And there I got to meet a lot of guys who hadn't had all the same opportunities as me. And I was basically doing these legal education seminars. So getting up, speaking to the guys with a PowerPoint and explaining some of their rights to them. And this guy, Jamie, kept coming back session after session after session. I was thinking, yes, I'm good at this. Jamie loves my sessions. And it wasn't until like the 11th session that my confidence dimmed because I hadn't brought enough pamphlets. And I said, sorry to the guys, I was gonna have to print more. And Jamie actually said, he turned to me and he said, miss, you can take mine back. I actually can't read. And I just felt this sinking feeling of, oh my God, of course he's coming back to my sessions. I'm pointing to slides he can't understand. I'm handing him things that he can't read that fully appreciated for the first time that my capacity to read, to write, to speak, even the way I am now, is the product of the education I've had. And here was me working in prisons, an environment where only 7% of men and 14% of women have a year 12 or equivalent education, which are completely damning statistics. So a lot of my job was just helping guys read their charging sheets so they literally understood what they had been charged with, what they were in jail for, which they hadn't understood before that point. So I think having an experience where you're confronted with your difference with somebody else's opportunity, that's the space. That's how you suddenly realize how much your education is meant to you. Yeah, wow. Um, it sounds like though that even before that experience, you sort of had an, some sort of appreciation for education that's maybe more so than most people. Um, how much of that is due to your upbringing? Were your parents really supportive or...? Definitely. So I have a rather unusual upbringing in that most people consider themselves to have two parents. I have three, which is uh, not the norm. So I was actually raised by lesbian mothers, and my father is a gay man who was friends with my biological mother. And all three of them are incredibly highly educated. My mother is a microbiologist. My father has his PhD and speaks several languages. And my non-biological mother was a lawyer in the States. And so growing up in the early 1990s, 
while that was a really unusual upbringing and uh, has, is a huge part of who I am, fundamentally, I was raised by these three very highly educated people who wanted me to have a good education. In fact, when my mother was looking for a man to have a child with, she looked my father and said, hey, you seem pretty smart. You'd make a great sperm donor. So that's how that worked out. <laughs> um, so it, what I find really interesting, though, is um, so how did all of this transfer when you came to Australia? Because it sounds like, because growing up in the 90s with that interesting family dynamic, how, was it any different here than it would have been over there? People are always really surprised when I answer that I found Australia to be much more conservative than in the US. In the US, while it was unusual to have that set up, I actually did know other uh, young people who had same-sex parents. And beyond that, there was a little bit of talk of it in the school of, let's not use those words. And I arrived in Australia and got straight on the playground and people are saying, oh, he's a fag, that's so gay. And I just felt it and I felt sick over it. And in moving to Australia, actually, my uh, mothers had broken up by that point. I moved with just my biological mother. And she kind of warned me, things might be a little bit different where we're going, don't really know. And I realized very quickly cottoned on and came up with some elaborate story of my father dying, I think, because I just didn't want to get into the gay mother thing. And um, it wasn't until I was, I think about 17, that I told the first person in Australia. And um, their first reaction was, does that mean you're gay? And that kind of reinforced all of my fears of, you know, when I was in a school that was so homophobic, there was just no way I was going to tell everybody else that that was my situation. It's only now in my adult life that I feel at all confident to just put that out there loud and proud. Wow. So do you feel like the way you were treated during that period um, sort of inspired you to pursue the sort of change that you do with education or not at all? 100% that I think realizing that I was... Uh, different in some way and hearing kids speak about that made me want to explain to them my situation and why it was okay. I'm really fine talking about my upbringing because I think it's so important to have those conversations so that people can understand like you know what actually there are a million ways that a person can be raised and be okay and I knew from a very young age that I wanted to just raise my voice and speak out about the things that mattered to me. I was one of those very annoying kids between <laughs> all of those causes. But even on my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to eat it if it had a face. And I've been a, a vegetarian ever since. So I was, I was one of those kids. And that's definitely stayed with me. My non-biological mother at that age was uh, working as a prosecutor. But she would tell me lots of stories about when she used to be a defense attorney. And became, I became convinced from about the age of seven, like, that's it. That's what I've got to do. I've got to become a lawyer then I'm gonna find my voice and be able to explain to people the things that are wrong in the world. And that is ultimately what led me to my law degree so many years later. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you mentioned the law degree then. How big was the change in uni? Because from going from such a conservative context to something hopefully a bit more progressive, was, was that like more encouragement or? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think that while it will be true across my life that I will have never been surrounded by such a well-educated, intelligent, in many ways, progressive and incredible group of people as I was in law school, absolutely there was still a lot of homophobia. Wow. And um, that was something that really, really got to me while I was there. I ended up writing an article about it, which I copped some criticism for, that on our first day of classes, 
a guy made a, a gay joke to the class and no one said anything. And it was just kind of mind boggling to me that that was something that A, a person thought was appropriate to do, but beyond that, that it was just kind of accepted by the class. And I ended up having a rather large dispute with this guy over the years and it was always interesting to me that um, his demeanor and his attitude towards different groups of people was something that didn't prevent him from having friends in a really supposedly progressive environment. So I think that no matter where you go, doesn't matter what the environment is like, there will still be some level of kind of simmering beneath the surface racism or homophobia or sexism wherever you go. And it just has to be a matter of choosing what are the instances that you're able to give yourself over emotionally to actually fight that. So with that dynamic, I know for me in high school, and I think a lot of other people in high school and university, you can become quite passionate about the issue, but you find it hard to find people to rally around you. And you can feel like you're a lone voice shouting and screaming on the top of your lungs about something, and you're not really getting any feedback from people. If you're getting feedback, it's negative. How do you stay so like determined to keep on that line, mm. despite hearing that pushback? I love that. Uh you mentioned that, that that's so much of my experience even now in my adult life, forget about high school and university, if like a woman identifies as being a feminist or um, calling something out as being sexist, there is no environment that she gets to, that people are like, yeah, right on. That it's still something that is um, mocked or just an eye roll of, all right, you know, turn it up, these loud feminists. So that can be hard to be in that space and to maintain that. I guess that for me, I'm a, I am a deeply logical person. Uh, for me, a lot of people expect me to be quite emotional about the work that I do, and sometimes I am. Like, I won't deny there's an occasional cry, but for me, the cause is logical. I'm here because I know education can make a difference and because I know gender equality is important. I know the statistics behind that. That makes me want to fight for that day in, day out. And the way that I kind of logically calculate this in my life, and I think that makes me get out of bed and do it again and again, is that I have had literally every opportunity. I am a member of most privileged groups with the exception of being female, that I owe it back to the world to be better and to do better. That not everybody can have the same life as me to live so comfortably and literally if everyone did, we would need more than one earth because we could not sustain ourselves on this earth if everyone had this standard of living. That's something that I owe back to the planet. I think that often, people will make excuses in the developed world of, oh, but I'm not hurting anyone. Like, yeah, I've, I've taken this job in this evil corporation, but you know, it's just, it's just a job and I'm not hurting anyone. Well, no, because you didn't start at a kind of like net neutral position. If you're in the developed world and you're living a developed lifestyle, then you owe something back to get yourself to a neutral position. And so as hardline as that might sound, for me, that's literally like a logical calculation of, what choice should you make in your life for the job that you work, for the thing that you do with your time? It should be something that tries to make a difference in the world. And that's interesting that you mentioned that. Were there many other people in your high school in particular that shared that view? Which is something that I want to impress. To an extent, I, I went to an all-girls private school here in Melbourne. And certainly there were some really deeply passionate people. And I, I was really impressed with how the teachers tried to impart that on us, but that doesn't make it mean that it's an environment that is above some of the pressures of being a teenager and that there isn't um, that push to 
just kind of go with the flow and be normal and not speak out about things. And so, I mean, that was me for a while, for sure. I was a very bad teenager. I'm not going to try to be above that. I had a plan to do something new each year to uh, punish my mother in some way. So I was drinking and smoking and drugs. I got a tattoo when I was 15. Like, I was one of those girls, by all means. And I think that when that pressure exists in a particular environment, it can be very hard to have the courage to uh, just be true to yourself and speak out about the things that mattered. For years, I pretended to be unintelligent because that was more likable for boys. And it wasn't until I got almost to my adult life that I was like, fuck that, you know? <laughs> the, the world is going downhill way too fast. I gotta take action on this stuff. And everybody comes to that in their own time. I feel really lucky that I got there before I got into university. But even now, I see friends who I've known for years and years and years realize in their adult life, you know what, this corporate career I've chosen isn't for me. I am actually going to try and do something more with my time. So I, I hope that everyone can, can come to that in their own time. Yeah, well, now that you mentioned that, actually, um, we really liked your article that you wrote in, um, in the JD's publication. Um, and we, I was just wondering, because it, it hit us a lot, even though we're undergraduate students and in commerce, it's the same sort of thing. How do you feel that that came about? Is it, do you have a problem with how the courses are marketed? Or... In terms of where that article came from, I had just finished doing a clerkship, which is uh, just basically law students being sent off to, to corporate firms so that they can play the personality game and end up with a good job and um, earn more than I certainly earn in my job now. And I think that the way that it's set up in terms of law school and this whole Melbourne or Monash, Melbourne or Monash being the two kind of universities that are geared as these top tier type of degrees and you're gonna end up in that space. Sure, there is an element of that which is how the degree is marketed in terms of getting um, a good job, but I think particularly what I found at Melbourne is because it's much, such a small cohort, it's intensely competitive and there's just a lot of kind of internal competitive, uh, competitiveness in that you're comparing yourself with everyone around you and everyone's talking about clerkships, best firms, these are the top six, gotta get into the top six and it just, kind of spirals so that everyone feels like they need to end up in that position. That certainly, I went into the law degree with no intention of doing a clerkship. And then it was just the done thing. Everyone was doing it. Oh my gosh, I've got to rush for this. I've got to do this. I've got to get onto that. And ended up in this position that ultimately left me like looking out this beautiful view of the city, very high up in 101 Collins, just being like, what the fuck? How did I get to be in this position? This is not what I imagined for myself. And I'm so happy that having left that degree, I'm in a job that has nothing to do with that. I'm in a job that I'm deeply passionate about. And I have plenty of friends who have gone that way as well. My partner was also in, uh, in the law degree with me and has ended up at Australian Conservation Foundation, totally outside of the law, not regretting the degree. We met each other in the degree, so I'm not allowed to say I regret the degree. But more importantly than that, just I think now that I have this kind of mental space from it, being able to recognize that a law degree is good for things other than being a lawyer and certainly other than being a corporate lawyer. And so I'm able to kind of sit back and say, a lot of the skills I have today came from there, but I am so glad that I didn't get completely sucked down that path. I think otherwise five years from now, I'd be sitting, staring out that same window in 101 saying, oh, what if, what if I had gone into the charity world and, and just regretting a lot of life decisions. I think it's too easy to say to yourself, I'm gonna be in that firm or that job for a year or two years until I have the experience, and then I'll do the thing that matters. That's when I'll crack onto it. 
Did you feel that 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 decision maybe would have been harder if you'd come from a less privileged background? Um, would the financial incentives been harder? Hundred percent. And I I see that every day. I certainly see that in friends who didn't grow up as privileged as me. That this is for the first time in their life an opportunity to feel secure and feel like if their family needed it, they could support them. I completely understand that pressure. And I think, yeah, honestly, if my family were in a different situation, maybe I would make those choices too. I think that's really scary that that's the reality of it, that people could end up in positions that they're not necessarily passionate about and that don't sit with their values because of socioeconomic pressures. And to me, that's a failing not of those individuals. That is a failing of our society that we've kind of created those pressures and that we don't have an equality that allows for people to get into university based on merits, get these jobs out of merit. And uh, that, that really scares me about how we fix that problem when it's part of the dream that we sell ourselves of then being able to get that good job, of being able to support your family, when really that dream does not work out for 99% of people who are in that socioeconomic turmoil. Do you think that's more of something the not-for-profit space and perhaps social enterprise should take more action on, or is it more something that goes higher up to, to the government? To me, that is a fundamental, systemic, societal thing. So, you know, before when I mentioned people in prison having a really low rate of education, often, for example, uh, community legal centers are asked to answer for that, and different charities are told, hang on, why aren't lawyers protecting these people better? Why is there such overrepresentation of indigenous people? Why is there such a low rate of literacy in prisons? Well, that starts a long way before you get to the community legal center. That starts with mental health funding, that starts with diversion programs, that starts with education more fundamentally, why these people haven't had the opportunity to get all the way through school. And so to me, that goes way, way beyond what the social services sector could do. And look, if I'm honest, it goes, in my conceptualization of how a society should run, there is so much that those social services are making up for that really a government should be providing. And that's kind of the reality of where we're trapped. But I think that this is a, a bit of a tricky one to, in terms of jobs and job opportunities for people to be able to follow their passion, follow their values. It's such a hard one to ask the social services sector to answer for because um, straight away, in terms of hiring practices, uh, anyone who's in the charity sector gets criticized for salaries, for even having salaried positions. People will often meet me and say, oh, but you know, how can you do that five days a week if it's a charity? You know, you, you're volunteering. Well, no, I have rent. I have to eat food. And people don't have a good enough understanding of not-for-profits to be able to either fairly pay for those positions or beyond that to have enough positions to employ people who may have come from a different socioeconomic group or different circumstances. So to me, it's a whole hodgepodge of problems, but I think it goes so beyond anything that the not-for-profit sector can do. And with the, the stigma around charities, because even I, like, I donate annually to the Fred Hollows Foundation, and sometimes on the way to uni in Melbourne Central, you, hear, you see people um, hassling people to like, sign up for donations, and I kind of think to myself, oh, did my $50 go to saving someone's site, or did it go to pay this, some, this person to hassle someone in the thorough way. But then again, I think on a logical reasoning is that the reason charities employ these people is because they're bringing in more revenue than the charities are paying the companies. So how do you think we can change the stigma around charities and donations and this whole kind of hyper accountability that people seem to have? It's something that really scares me because 
as the leader of a charity, on one hand, I'm like, hey, we should all be talking about this so that we can fix some of the myths and the misconceptions. On the other hand, I'm like, no, don't let anyone see this. Like, let's just keep it under wraps. It's too hard to explain. And sometimes I honestly just give up. People will be like, that's disgusting that you guys have an office or something like that. And, and you just can't respond to that. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, people get really angry at the um, kind of uh, people who harass you in the street and all that sort of thing. And I get that. To be honest, as a charity CEO, I would never make the decision to go in that direction purely because I think it's a really short end game. The people who sign up in that way feel so burned and I think that um, people just seeing them all the time makes them less likely to give in general and so it turns people away from charities. To me, that's kind of a, a short end game. But 100% I understand why they do it. For every dollar they put into that, they get $8 out. That's an insane return on investment. What commerce student wouldn't tell you what economics <laughs> professor wouldn't say, yes, do that. It's a, it's a great way of doing it. If you were able to explain that to donors of, hey, give us 50 bucks and we're going to turn it into 300, 400, you know, whatever they're able to do on their return on investment, surely most people would say yes, but the charity will never explain that because people aren't emotionally connected to turning $50 into $400. They're emotionally connected to look at this child and look at the difference you made for them. But all the studies show that it's not even just about talking about the logic of the money or of um, the statistics or even groups of people that you can help change, people want to hear the individual story. They want to hear one person's story and the difference that you're going to make to that person, even if it's not entirely factually accurate. Yeah, do you think that stifles charities from approaching that macro level change or maybe playing by the same way uh, tactics that private businesses do because you can't focus on that one individual story? In a lot of ways, if yeah, because if charities are, to be honest and transparent in, um, in the way that we all want to be, then absolutely you're not allowed to make those big claims and you're not allowed to talk about things in a way that is necessarily the best way to grab quote unquote customers to your business. And that's one of the things that really scares me in a way about um, social enterprise, that I love social enterprises, I love that that's a potential to move forward in the sector, but it does scare me when social enterprises and charities are held in comparison to one another. Social enterprise is so much more sexy. It's, uh, they get to say all of these kind of big things, they get to do big things. People say, look at them being much smarter than the charity people because they're able to turn a profit. <laughs> And it's, it's not a like-for-like like comparison, uh, and it, it's something that worries me moving forward that I think that the charity sector will decline with the rise in social enterprises, but I'd love if people were really critical thinking about whether or not that's always the best way forward. It's an interesting point. So what would you say, I think especially young people see social enterprises like a double good because you can go out and buy your water, you can buy your toilet paper, and you know it's like going to a good cause. And then charities is something on top of that. And often people have a certain amount or kind of in their mind have a certain amount they want to give. Where do you think charities can go moving forward to kind of tackle that issue around social enterprise? I think one way is having the conversation and education. It scares me when I'll talk to people about what I do and, and One Girl and um, that kind of movement. And people will say something like, oh, no, I do my bit. I buy my toilet paper from who gives a crap. And I'm like, okay, but five years ago, you didn't feel that way. You did donate to a charity regularly. Now, people have a 
uh, get to give mentality, that they need to get something in order to give. And that's not the sort of society I wanna build. I wanna build a society where people are willing to sacrifice, where people see the inherent good in trying to give back without needing to show that off or to um, get something that they're able to kind of you know, show everybody of, of how good they've been. And so I think if we have those conversations, perhaps people can start to get their heads around that. Beyond that, I think it's also um, kind of full transparency. Social enterprises don't have the same pressures on them as charities to be transparent. They don't have to tell you what they do with your dollar. That means that when they produce really fancy marketing materials, people say, ooh, that's great, that's fantastic. Uh, when charities do that, we get an email saying, how dare you spend my money in, your, in that way? You know, how dare you do that? I remember my comms director recently looked at the annual report from a social enterprise that's kind of similar to us, and she was ready to upturn the table because it was so beautiful. And I agree with her. It was really beautiful. It was an exciting way to sell their message, but also they have a team of like 15 people on that. We have one because our resources are under scrutiny. People look at our financials. And so it, uh, it, it's kind of worrying that we would be held in comparison to that in many ways. And I think that that's just a matter of having that conversation with people. That if you give us a dollar, here's what we'll do with it. We don't really know with what that one dollar does yeah. at X cafe that claims to be a social enterprise, but we know that it isn't quite as direct as the charity that you could have potentially given it to. And with allocating funds, I think this is quite a fascinating thing because not many people think about how charities they have an issue, say, overseas, like One Girl, how they actually go into the community, decide what projects are going to run, how they're going to operate it, who they're going to liaise with. Could you maybe take us through that process and how One Girl approaches it, how you found the experience, the challenges you've experienced with that? One of the toughest things is, in terms of working in the developing world, is staying accountable to it, making sure your money's doing the right thing, and always, always being across what are the changes that are taking place. So for us, we have staff who are both in Sierra Leone and Uganda who are local people, who speak the language, who understand the culture, who are able to help us with so many of the things that parachuting an aid worker in would not do. That used to be kind of the old style of aid that you kind of parachute in workers who are highly trained from other societies, but it didn't necessarily breed really good results for the community. So we work with our staff in country, with our programs team who are the most highly educated people in the world, and I constantly rely on them to make good decisions. And then we look for local community-based organizations that have all of the same sort of standards that we do uh, around their child protection policy, around how money gets spent, but beyond that in some of the particular aspects that we focus on. So we're uh, quite narrow as a charity. We're not trying to do lots of things. We're trying to do one thing, which is educate women. And so we need a community organization that we work with, not necessarily to be as narrow as us, but certainly to be on board with that mission and to understand why educating girls is so important to us as an organization. But beyond that, they need to understand that we do things in a particular way. So people will hop onto our website and often comment, you have these really damning statistics. You're telling me that more girls in Sierra Leone are sexually assaulted than attend high school, but then all you have is these photos of girls smiling. And they're really confused by that. But there's a really simple reason for it. I'm sure you guys have heard of poverty porn, this uh, kind of the starving child that you see on television that guilts someone into giving money. And we decided as an organization upfront, it's not our style. That's not how we're gonna do it. We don't like how it represents individuals. We don't like what that says about the charity. 
We want instead people to feel proud of how they're represented. We will never use a photo where we wouldn't be happy to show it to that person and for her to say, yes, that is me, that is what I look like, that's how I want the world to see me. Because the girls we work with are not victims of something. They, yes, have suffered challenges, but they've also been incredibly resilient. They are individuals with a story and we want to represent them that way. So for us working with a partner, we have to make sure that they're not only going to be able to help us deliver the program as we expect it to be delivered and work well in the community, we also need them to be able to sign up to that and say, yes, that's something we agree with. And we think that um, those issues of representation uh, and of things like community dialogue meetings, that they matter and that we want to make sure that the program gets implemented in that way. So with the, the whole charity porn scenario, that's an external concept. But intrigued about internally, often people who work in the impact space, in the NFP space, it can be quite almost depressing, I guess, to always hear these stories filtering back, tragic circumstances. How do you kind of handle that and not almost blame yourself for what's happened, given that you talked about privilege and equaling it um, back to zero? How does that kind of play out? I wouldn't lie and say that it's never affected me. I, I remember when I was in Sierra Leone last year, I met a girl who was 15. She was one of our scholarship students. And I asked her what she wanted to be after school. And she had this incredible way of speaking. English was not her first language. It was her third. But she had still developed the accent of someone who lives in Southern California. I don't know where from. But she was just such a go-getter. And she was speaking so fervently. And when I asked her what she wanted to be, she said, a journalist. I want to study creative writing. And I asked her why. And she said, I want to be able to explain to other people the things that I have seen so that they care about them as well. And I had to turn away for a second because despite everything I saw in her myself when I was younger and the dreams that I had in terms of my capacity to speak out about things. And that was so moving in that moment and also so troubling because I knew looking at her that she had no way as easy of a path as I did to make that dream come true. And that there are many, many circumstances and it's probably most likely that she won't get to see that dream realized. I would love it if she could, and I am so proud that right now she's a 15-year-old who is not married, who doesn't have a child, uh, which is unusual in, in her circumstances to be in Sierra Leone and to be in high school and not have those things happen to her, but that she might not get to see all of her dreams realized. And so on a personal level, I think that one kind of, that, that experience brought it home for me of you have to be able to be proud of the things you can change to celebrate the small wins and to accept that it's not all going to happen. That changing the world isn't easy or it would be done. That instead you need to work step by step and be collaborative and be supportive and be understanding of where you are at and where the organization's at in terms of being able to create that change. Do you ever run into roadblocks and just completely lose motivation or how do you kind of overcome that? Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'm sure my staff would answer that right away and say, yes, yes, she has that. And sometimes I'll have a little breakdown in the office over a particular roadblock. And sometimes that's on the management side here. And sometimes that's on stuff that's happening over there, that things can just go really, really wrong. Um, for our organization, for example, we had huge plans ready to go when Ebola hit. When Ebola hit, schools got closed down for a year and a half in Sierra Leone. You can't send girls back to school when that's happening. And on one level, that's frustrating. 
but you don't have time when something goes wrong like that to sit and be frustrated and be demotivated. Instead, you need to be at all action stations, be saying, what can we do? Let's get up and actually start moving towards creating that change. And what that meant for us is being super reactive, looking at, OK, what are the challenges that the country's now facing? How can we reinvest those funds in a different way? Which during Ebola was that if you lived in Freetown, you might understand what Ebola was. You might understand how it was transmitted. It's the capital of Sierra Leone. But if you were living rurally, there was a good chance that you had no idea what was going on. And there were these stories of communities that had not seen many white people. And here they were seeing white people come into the community in hazmat suits, take away sick family members who were never seen again. And so of course there was a feeling that this is a conspiracy. This is not a real disease. This is a conspiracy by um, white interveners from other countries. And so there were still funeral processions going forward where a person would have died of Ebola and the family members would come and be crowding around the body and be hugging the body and um, be transmitting the infection to themselves. And so having that information, we invested in immediate Ebola education, which was local people making sure that there was education across the board of what to do if a family member has Ebola, what to do if a family member dies so that you weren't infected as well. And even just traveling there in November, December of last year, the remnants are still there. There are signs in all across Sierra Leone of a man with his hand out saying, stop, show respect for your family member and pray one meter from the body. Call the body collectors. And that was such an ominous sign to have hanging over what is right now a healthy country, but that the, the remnants of Ebola still linger in that community so strongly. But the big lesson for us coming out of that was to have resolve in being okay with things not going to plan, that you can still create a difference, you can still be important as an organization, even when you have to completely reverse what your plans were. That's amazing how reactive and responsive you were to such a massive change. Um, do you ever get worried because you have such an ambitious goal of educating one million girls? Do you ever worry that as your organization gets bigger, maybe your responsiveness or distance to the issue will change? I think that what's really important with the one million girl goal is it's a, an easy one to rally people around. You know, I, I go out and give these speeches and I talk about how there's 130 million girls around the world who are not in school who should be. We want to educate one million of them. People get that. People are like, yes, that's a goal that makes sense. Let's do that. But for us, if we're talking about it internally as an organization, it's to educate one million girls without ever compromising on quality to get to quantity. And with that in mind, and kind of all the values we have as an organization, I'm quite lucky that there really isn't any compromise on that, that the staff are really on board with what our mission is, and that we are always really careful that we're following our do no harm policy, that we're doing the best things we can with our resources, and we constantly question ourselves on that. We have values around constantly being informed and asking the questions of, is this still the right course of action? So to give you an example of that in practice, if we were trying to race to that one million girl goal, we would be doing things like building school toilets um, at a much more rapid rate than we are, because that keeps a higher number of girls in school really, really fast. But we have programs that are much more intensive for longer periods of time and are more costly that we still support, because we know that they have a massive effect. We wouldn't send girls back to school who were 12. We would send them back to school when they were 17, because then we'd only have to pay for a year of school instead of paying it for all the way up to year 13, which they study to in Sierra Leone. But 
as an organization, we are committed to that. We know that that's the right way to do it, and so we won't compromise on that. And that's something I'm really proud of. Yeah, no, understandably. Um, how did you develop that sort of ability to be so good with your resource management? Where did it come from considering your age? <laughs> uh, I think that the age thing is, look, I get asked it a lot because I am you know, the youngest member of the team and, and I look young to be a CEO and all of that. But fundamentally, I have an incredible team behind me and they could not have made me CEO if there weren't uh, all of these people who were able to make those kind of autonomous, strong decisions. I rely very heavily on my team. I don't have an international development background where my strength is, is in the representation of the organization and the management of the organization, not in the day-to-day -day tough decisions. If I were the staff on the ground in Sierra Leone and I were having to choose who got a scholarship and who didn't, I, I could not do that job. It wouldn't be possible for me, both in terms of uh, the information that I have and my emotional capacity. And so I'm so lucky that it's kind of this whole framework of people who do have that, that background, if it makes sense. But in terms of my age, and, and that is a question of being a CEO, I actually have never found it to be a disadvantage. Sure, it might affect people's opinions of me externally, that they meet me and think it's kind of crazy that I'm managing this organization. But internally, it has never been an issue. And I work with staff who are much older than me. It's all about where you're able to draw on your strengths, but being super self-aware of your weaknesses. And I try and never let myself lose sight of what those weaknesses are, or I've become a bad manager. <laughs> um, how did you know you were ready to take that jump then? Do you know what I mean? To you know, apply for the job because you, know, you didn't found the organization. <laughs> Uh, straight up, definitely was not ready. <laughs> I've never been ready. Recently, uh, my mother said to me, my mother who I admire deeply from her professional background, she's like, oh, I've never gotten into a job and you know, felt like I knew what I was doing. It's like, mom, why didn't you tell me a year ago when I started this job? I needed that advice then. That I knew going into this, I was going to be a young or the youngest person applying and that there were gonna be people who had 10 or 20 years more experience than me. But I also knew that was my job. I saw it and I thought immediately, that's my job. And I knew that what I lacked in that experience and in age, I could 100% make up for in passion and dedication, the willingness to work myself into the ground to make it work. And that's what I sold to the board, that yes, you could take on someone who has 10 years more experience than me, but they're not gonna feel the same way as I do about this job, and they're not going to commit to this organization for the same period of time or with the same amount of vigor and energy as I am. And my biggest advice to young people coming in is to do exactly that, to turn your strength, sorry, to turn your age into a strength rather than a weakness, to work out why your age is an okay, or even better, a great thing in terms of bringing that to a board or to a potential employer because there is absolutely something to be said for that. For example, one girl's major audience are 15 to 24, so how appropriate is it that I'm 25 and speaking to them? That's a really really easy sell to the board and something that um, I wish that more young people felt willing to do, to put their hands up for things that they're not necessarily ready for and to see the experiences that they've had in university and you know, working at the local bakery, at being a manager at Kohl's, as things that are valid to having bigger jobs that they feel passionately about, to not be afraid to sell those things in an interview. So you had 
a fair few positions before becoming the one girl. And on young people taking opportunities, what do you say, where did that confidence come from to say, I'm the, I'm the girl for this job, I can do this? Because often with young people, we doubt, are we ready? Do we have the skills? Is that a self-awareness thing or something you develop? Or where do you think that came from for you? Nah, fake it till you make it. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, you know, I, I think about this often and um, I'm one of those crazy people. I heard that scientific study that if you put a pencil in your mouth that forces you to smile, that has the same effect as actually smiling on your endorphins. And I heard that and I was like, great, that is what I'm going to do with my life. That's what I do with public speaking that for a long time I would tell people, I'm not afraid of public speaking. I love public speaking. Was not true. But you say it enough times, and you do enough public speaking, and you stop feeling it. Honestly, now, I can get up and not feel a single bit of nerves. Doesn't matter where I'm speaking. And that's only something that's developed after like four years of faking it. But for me, going for this job and feeling that confident, it was exactly that. I went in with that confidence of just like, yep, got this. It's my job. I know it's my job. And, and not really worrying about it. Of course, I was had the self-awareness to practice and to prepare. When they told me for my final stage of the interviews, oh, you can make a PowerPoint if you want. I spent two days on that PowerPoint. It was my life, was making the best PowerPoint you have ever seen. It had fade-ins and fade-outs and <laughs> everything that you were doing when you were like 12 years old and first got onto PowerPoint. But I think that that combo of being prepared as a way of showing that I was passionate, but beyond that, just going in and being confident and being real was the winning combo. How do you handle mistakes? Because I assume that happened to all of us. And especially if we're faking it till we make it, if we are to make a mistake, how do, how do you handle that? Not well. Um, <laughs> I am a perfectionist by, by nature and I, I beat myself up around it a lot. Like I still think back on things that happened when I was a teenager. I'm like, oh, you idiot, <laughs> why? Um, but in this job, yeah, I make mistakes often. And number one thing is to own up to it, to whoever is, is relevant. Recently, um, we were meant to have a website launch. And of course, nothing went to plan, which is always the case when you're trying to launch a new website. And so straight away, my plan of action when I realized how things had gone pretty badly and that we weren't going to launch on time was to make a list of everything I needed to do and everyone I needed to contact with this huge fuck up that, yep, I need to send an email to the board and explain it to them. I need to contact everyone who's helped us up till this stage. I need to get my team members actioning X, Y, and Z to ensure that we're ready to go in a month's time or two months' time. And I think being able to respond to mistakes with giving yourself a brief moment to say, you idiot, and then to take all of the moments thereafter to make a strategy and a plan around actioning it that makes the difference and it prevents you from just dwelling on it because you have your action plan, that's the next step and there is no other choice but to start ticking off the things on that list. Becoming the, the CEO of One Girl or working in an NFP, was that a, a wider goal you had for a while or did you have goals especially at university and high school that I want to grow up and do this and X, Y, Z and you really chased that hard or was it more kind of a free-flowing thing? Pretty free-flowing. I mean, I, I definitely had that aim of um, studying law, um, becoming a lawyer, which at various points I wavered on, but uh, felt really passionately about that. And then throughout my law degree, I think I changed my mind about 20 times about the way that I was going to 
um, find my career path. The thing that has remained consistent, and this is where I think I draw a lot of, uh, not just the passion, but the, like the willingness to get up and do it from, is that consistently I've looked to choose a job where I could create the most good. Where is a job where I could actually be trying to um, change the world in the way that I want to see it change? If I were just trying to get a job in the not-for-profit space, I probably wouldn't be here because I could have taken it at any organization. But there are a lot of things out there that I would be no good at. I wouldn't be that passionate about it. I could probably convince myself to be really passionate about some of these other causes if I was there for long enough, but I couldn't just have a conversation like this one. I could talk about gender equality, about education, about the work of one girl all day long and not blink. When I give speeches, it's just like talking. It's not like getting up and giving this big performative speech because I feel passionately about this cause. And so it was ultimately what one girl was doing, not the fact that it was a CEO role or that it was you know, a step in the right direction in the not-for-profit world that made me choose this role and go for it. And I think that that was probably recognizable to the board in choosing me for the role. I think it, they probably wouldn't have been persuaded by someone who was there purely for a career leap. And I guess the thing that comes up a lot, people always ask me, you know, what's next after this? I don't know. For, for me, this is it. And so I'm just really happy to dwell in this space for as long as I think that I'm doing a great job for the organization and I haven't worn myself entirely ragged, and then I'll work it out from there. And yeah, it'll probably always for the rest of my life be in this sort of thing, but I haven't got any sort of path like a lot of people have drawn out for themselves. It's just... Where am I able to invest my energies in a way that is okay for me, but great for the organization and great for the people who benefit from that organization's work? That's all I'm focused on. A lot of people I talk to when I talk to them about, oh, what do you want to do later on after uni? Um, they, they say they want to make an impact and they want to make a difference. And I say, oh, what do you want to do? And they are the traditional corporate role. And they ask them why? And often the argument after, say, financial stability is uh, skill development or I'm going to have this exponential growth, like the, the not-for-profit space is not as fast-paced, I'm going to be exposed to so many experienced people and after a couple of years I can make a more effective impact if I shift gears or maybe I can earn to give, um, for example. What do you kind of say to that, people saying that? Ugh, it's bullshit. <laughs> Sorry. Um... So I hear several different arguments in this space, and let me refute each in turn. Uh, I, I love when people are like, oh, you know, corporates are doing a lot of great volunteering now. Oh, come on. Like, no, they're doing just enough volunteering so that they can make themselves look great. I've been to plenty of corporate events where they're like, this is how much we've donated this year, where you also know that they've spent three times that to, like, to give that event that they're announcing how much they've donated it at. Come on. So that one I, I don't buy, that people think that they can get the work done within the system in that way. Second one is I'm going to earn money and I'm going to be able to give that money out. Maybe. I know that Peter Singer supports this. This is a big thing of, oh, you can just go and get a good job and give money and not feel bad. But I love it when people are working jobs like, certainly in my world, it's you know, defending the bad guys as a lawyer and saying, so I'm going to have this great law job, and yeah, I'm going to work with uh, Adani Coltmine and BHP Billiton, and oh, I'll give some money to the Climate Foundation on the side. So um, I'm just such a good guy when, no, again, you need to look at that kind of 
net neutral or net positive impact that you're able to have. So I kind of, I, I reject that one to a large extent and I'm also skeptical that most of the people who say that actually become the sort of philanthropists that they say they're going to um, be and that is supported by evidence in terms of who are the people who give large amounts of money. People look to the Oprahs of the world but of course relative to her income it's, it's just not uh, a good demonstration of philanthropic effort. Not that I don't love Oprah, of course. <laughs> So then the third argument is I'm gonna get all of this experience and then I'm gonna be able to bring that into this sluggish, crappy, not-for-profit space that just needs an injection of energy. <laughs> I have always looked at people in the not-for-profit space and been blown away by the talent, the dedication, the intelligence that is in that space and not recognized, more importantly, I have been in both corporate and not-for-profit spaces and I do not see a difference in terms of uh, the caliber of people who choose those jobs. Uh, and so I'm, I'm skeptical of this idea that not-for-profits are sluggish or bad with money. I think it's just that, again, there's that really poor education of what not-for-profits do. And often when people kind of make assumptions about my job, I see that. I see that they think that I don't do certain things that that are part of my job. Beyond that though, there's always this attitude of, oh, you know, if only not-for-profits could get some good marketing or you know, if only they, they understood PR. We get lots of different people who will come and volunteer for a day with us or all that sort of thing and, and I love their dedication, I love they wanna be a part of it, but fundamentally, marketing is not the same as fundraising, just the same as project management for a corporate firm is not the same as programs management for a not-for-profit. People think that they're gonna bring that energy in, they're gonna revolutionize the space. Chances are the not-for-profits already thought about that idea and they've discounted it for some reason. I'm often blown away, people will bring these ideas to us and say, you should use that, that's brilliant. And quite succinctly I'll be able to tell them, oh, we would love to, but that would cost eight times our budget or uh, that would actually be super offensive to this group of people. And people are kind of um, shocked by that of, oh, oh yeah, you're right. And maybe you have thought about that idea. Um, I get people who will literally come up to me and be like, have you heard of this child sponsorship thing? You guys should try that. Like, that'd be a great idea for you. And so I, there's often a thing said in not-for-profits, uh, particularly in the fundraising space, of never hire a marketer. They just don't get it to be in fundraising. And uh, I wouldn't use that as a rule. I wouldn't say, I'm not gonna say I wouldn't hire someone out of marketing but fundamentally they are different. Those skills are different and you're not necessarily going to come in and blow people's mind in the not-for-profit space just because you've got five years at a corporate or in consulting or something like that. And so if you know, a person says, I really wanna go get that experience and get that financial stability and then go there, okay, I'll engage with that conversation, but I wouldn't want them to do it thinking that they're gonna be so much better for the not-for-profit having come in that way. I think you can learn a lot from the ground up in either fundraising or programs or admin in a not-for-profit that really would surprise people if they spent a bit of time in the space. Do you think that there are vested interests that are peddling the sort of myths that you're debunking right now? Um, and if so, <laughs> who are the people that you'd like to have a... Oh, who would I like to call out? Oh, look, I think that there is that oft-repeated myth of not-for-profits are... Um, sluggish or less, um, just less good than social enterprises or, or the corporate sphere, that they don't know how to handle money. 
Not-for-profits have to know money better than anyone else. We have to write a budget that is accurate enough that we don't end up with a windfall at the end of the year or we're in trouble. That's the whole point of a not-for-profit is you can't you know, turn profit over year after year. And sometimes that is really difficult, but we have to handle money so, so well in order to do our jobs effectively. We have to be able to speak to the toughest financial regulations, the toughest administrative and legal regulations of anyone in any sector, because we have to have our DGR status, we have to have licenses in every state that we fundraise, we need to have our financials available on our website. All of that transparency means that there is a really like high level of work that's going on uh, behind the scenes that I think doesn't really get credit. So I don't know if I want to call anyone out <laughs> in particular, but I would just love it if people questioned a little more where they've gotten this idea that people who work in not-for-profits are all bleeding hearts who have no effective skills. I said up front, I'm all logic, no emotion, and I stand by that, and that is true of plenty of the people I work with, and even the emotional people I work with still have incredible, incredible skills. I have a team behind me at One Girl that I like to hope is representative of the industry as a whole, that have skills I cannot believe, that people will often look at our website and go like, wow, look at the videos you guys have, look at this kind of development, and look at this, um, all of the wording you guys have, all the materials you produce. We do that in-house, our graphic design, a lot of our web stuff, Everything we write, all of the programs that we, that we run, that is done by a team of eight people sitting in an office in Collingwood working our butts off to get it done. And to me, that's, that's really impressive and is uh, nothing to shake a stick at. I'm interested, how do you prevent burnout? So if you're quite passionate about an issue, often you're willing to go that one step further to get the job done or push a new initiative. How do you stop going to a point where you just derail or like lose sight of your physical health, for example, or kind of mental well-being. How do you kind of balance that? I definitely don't have that one handled, <laughs> straight up. Uh, this is about my 17th day in a row. I, I worked over the weekend up in Sydney, and um, my partner would be the first to tell you, like, nah, she is not on top of the work-life balance. And that is, that is really true, certainly of me. And it's not necessarily in the hours that you work. I mean, I have friends who are in corporate law who work 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every night. I don't necessarily work those hours. Some weeks, sure. Other weeks, I will work a much more standard working day. The burnout, as you identified, comes from that emotional passion that you are working hard every second you're there and you're pouring all of yourself into it. And this is one thing that I will admit straight up, the not-for-profit space is not as good at as other places. So um, I have trouble getting my staff to take annual leave, for example, because there's just never a good time when you're a small, dedicated team to step away from the work that you're doing. The not-for-profit space has really high turnover. I talked to other not-for-profit CEOs who have seen their entire staff turnover in two years. Luckily, that's not a problem I've had to deal with at a, to any great extent, but certainly it's a problem across the sector. The people get burned out, they go and do something else for a while, and maybe they come back in. And I don't think we have an effective strategy for managing it yet. I have instructed one of the much more emotionally intuitive members of my staff to take responsibility for that because I'm the worst person at trying to get it done and making sure that, for example, even that people take lunch breaks or anything like that. I haven't seen one of my staff leave their desk at lunchtime in a good nine months. So I know that we're guilty of it and I know that the sector is guilty of it. I don't know what the solution is. 
So if I'm a young person, I guess it's two different domains, high school and university, passionate about an issue, where should I start? What do you think I should do? So I want to jump back on your question in a small way, which is that I think I meet a lot of young people who tell me like, oh, I've been told passion's really important. I am really passionate. I don't know what I'm passionate about. And I hear that all the time, um, that people haven't quite identified what their thing is yet. I think it's really important that people take a second to step back, look in their gut, what is the thing that doesn't sit right with you? Is it the environment? Is it animals? Is it refugees? Is it gender equality? Is that gender equality here or overseas? Is it education? What is that thing that is making you tick, that makes you grind your teeth at night? Because you have to identify that thing before you're able to go that further step of taking action on it. And it's okay to have multiple things. Uh, certainly, obviously I've made my job and most of my life about gender equality and education. I still give a shit about climate change. Um, and, and I'm able to act that out in my personal life with what I eat and not driving a car and all that sort of stuff. But you need to find the thing that you would be willing to give yourself to day in, day out, before you can start on that journey. From there, it's, you have to be able to explain to someone why you feel passionately about it. I think one of the biggest problems is that people want to argue with facts and figures, and sometimes I'm guilty of this. I want to show you the statistics about women's education, but how much more powerful is it when I sit here and tell you stories about why education is important to me? That's what makes people want to get on board with this cause that you have, and so you have to be able to answer the question of why is it that you care so passionately about that? What has it been in your life that has made you realize that's important? A huge part of developing that story and understanding that is being well-informed, is being so well-read on the topic that you're trying to create change in. Starting with those steps, finding that thing that you're passionate about, explaining why you're passionate about it, learning about it, then you're ready to go. Then you know what are the opportunities in that space, um, what sort of career or what sort of volunteering opportunity might there be in that space. Forget about just, I want to get a job in the not-for-profit space. No, you've got to narrow it down to what sort of cause. Is it a health-based charity? Is it a social enterprise that's trying to demand those big evil corporates be better? Or is it something like what I do? Is it in management of an education organization? Once you've identified that, it becomes so much easier to find the next step. Where do you find those opportunities? Because you talk to a lot of people and there's often that, that one person who's doing everything, has done amazing things, done this trip, doing this project, and then other people just scrambling around like, where do you find these things? Um, where did you find those opportunities you took up? I think a lot of them came through looking really in depth at the particular place. So say somebody decides, hey, I'm really passionate about um, the environment or about climate change, great. Then you sh their first piece of research will be, there are 12 climate organizations in Victoria. Wonderful, I'm gonna stop on the 12 websites of those 12 climate organizations. So I mean, there's that level of research of just um, kind of being focused on those individual steps, but there's also a lot of stuff that just comes through talking to people, um, through being willing to give up your time as maligned as volunteering and internships are, that can be such a powerful way to meet the right people. So the volunteers who work under me, yep, they're gaining those skills that they, they wanna develop in the sector, but beyond that, a question I always ask them is, is there somebody you wanna meet? 
is there a conversation you want to have? Is there a place you want to get to? Because if I can make it happen, I will. And I think most organizations that have volunteers will be smart and will try to create those opportunities because they want to see those people survive and thrive in the sector. And so I think as soon as you have one thing, that's how you become one of those people who has all the things right. because it's so much easier once you have that first break through the door for people to then talk to you about all the opportunities that exist. That said, I came across this job scrolling through Facebook. So I really can't tell you that, oh, you need to be doing all your research. I wasn't even looking for a job and came across the video that they were looking for their CEO. So it might happen just like that, but you might as well hedge your bets and try and get in somewhere first. Um, quickly, I want to talk about privilege because um, you mentioned that you came from quite a privileged background and coming from a private school, often you can come from a cocooned perspective. It's very narrow-minded. You haven't really seen what's out there. And sometimes, having been to a private school myself, the social impact work can feel a bit tokenistic, like it's your, your gold coin donations, it's a barbecue here or there, and you, you come out of school without really knowing what impact is even. How do you think you can kind of blow that perspective open and what can schools do, not only private schools, but any school do to expose students to what's going on in the world? I think something I have a really strong memory of from high school was doing fundraisers and kind of vaguely knowing what it was for, but not having any other information. And I think more than anything, what a school can do is choose a particular cause, encourage the students to direct that themselves, and support them in doing that, but more than that, kind of provide the opportunities to be educated on it. So something I saw this year that really touched me was this um, school out in Eltham, Eltham High. Uh, three girls were really passionate about girls' education. They found one girl online. They started talking to their classmates about uh, the work that we do and why girls' education is important, and they ended up having 90 students and staff at a school that doesn't have a uniform get on board with our do it in a dress campaign, which is you know putting on a school dress and doing challenges. And so here were, for a month, students that don't normally have to wear uniform wearing a school dress, boys and girls, teachers and students wearing a school dress to school. And that was a conversation starter that they were then able to give a speech in assembly that meant that their geography class focused on women's development programs so that the teachers had that buy-in as well of, these kids are passionate about this and we need to support them in being passionate about this. And they raised over $22,000 for our work, which meant that you know we went out to the school, um, I was able to talk to them about what does $22,000 do? How much of a difference can that mean to literally tens of girls who are able to go back to school for years to come as a result of that kind of fundraising? And so the thing that I felt was really different there rather than like, hey, it's a $2 donation to get a cupcake today, is that there was that buy-in to needing to explain what it was all about. Um, because I do think that young people get undersold, that we don't understand it or it's too much for us. No, like we're ready to understand those big things about the world. You've literally been seeing the news since you were a tiny little baby, that we live in a different society now where you are exposed to those things. You just need to be linked in with what is the difference that you can create so that you don't feel so powerless in this big bad world, that you actually feel like you can make a difference day by day to that thing. 
No, fair enough. Um, in terms of that um, more subtle education you were talking about, I know personally for me, like watching The Wire kind of changed the whole way I looked at the world and made me really passionate about things. Do you have any recommendations for people like us, um, whether that be movies, TV or books, that um, you know, could feel us in on your perspective? 100%. Oh, so many. You've opened up a, a bad door here. Um, in terms of a film, everyone must see the film Girl Rising. Uh, it has some big names on it, but really it's like a bit of a, a retelling of a doco story of girls in different societies trying to grow up and get an education. It'll make you cry, but it'll give you a good taste kind of, of women's education as a starting point. If you're a reader like I am, one of the one self-care thing I do is that I read a book a week and I alternate between fiction and nonfiction just to keep myself sane, sane is uh, you must read uh, Brian Stevenson, who is a anti-death penalty, anti-youth incarceration activ uh, activist in the States. Uh, and he writes so profoundly about the impact of the death penalty, particularly in the African-American community. And you will not be able to look at the criminal justice system in the same way. But beyond that, for a, a kind of a wider perspective on um, doing good, I highly recommend reading some Noam Chomsky. Everybody, come on, I'm a socialist. I have to mention Noam Chomsky. But also Peter Singer. Him and I disagree on a lot of things, certainly about uh, net negative impact. But his The Life You Can Save and some of his essays on um, the world around us, on animals, on how we spend our money and how we spend our lives are challenging, but so, so worth it. And he, if you're kind of new to philosophy and new to philanthropy as an idea, he writes uh, more plainly than anybody else out there. So he's the starting point for just getting your head around, hey, I should not be a shit person. And here's how to not be a shit person. So I definitely recommend starting with Peter Singer if you're, you're new to that type of reading. I just want to ask another question. Um, with the echo chamber these days, especially with social media, do you ever find yourself kind of being biased in one side without considering the other or social opening your Facebook feed and it's just people agreeing with you is that something you've experienced or how do you tackle it uh, if it wasn't something I had experienced I would have had an inkling that Donald Trump could have won that election <laughs> I, I had no clue that was coming man um, absolutely yeah there's definitely that echo chamber I mean I I live in a suburb that all, almost went green at the last federal election and before this point have lived in green suburbs and I remember having a, a conversation with my partner about indigenous recognition of the constitution and I was just like oh that's something that like 90% of people support <laughs> he was like where have you been talking to people that you think that is the reality and it's so easy to forget if you're a university student when you're in a, a highly educated place or um, even just working the type of job I work, that the majority of my team, we're not in animal ethics, the majority of my team are vegetarians. We have a team that has come from all different countries and are married to people from all different countries. Every single person in the team is either from a different place on earth or is married or dating someone from another place on earth. That's a good indication you're in a pretty progressive lefty space is, is those kind of realities. And so I know that I exist in them, but I try very hard to see what else is out there. I, I like having a good debate at parties. I, I, I don't drink and that helps immensely with having good debates at parties. With, with Definitely with winning them. Um, and definitely I think it's important to see the other side out there and to stay open and to have those discussions. And I love 
uh, having them. But something I'm also conscious of is it's enormously draining. If you're constantly being like, hang on, wait, let me see what the other side says. Sometimes I read things that my uh, right-wing relatives in the States are posting on Facebook, and I'm like, you know what? I just need to shut that down for a night. <laughs> I cannot handle that today. And, and that's okay, because uh, sometimes you just have to practice a little bit of self-care. And yes, you should be exposing yourself to those opinions, and you should constantly be testing the opinions you have, but you're allowed to also, once in a while, just say, you know what, that is just fundamentally racist or crap, and I'm not going to listen to it in order to be able to live your life. And so definitely, I, I wish I was better at it, and I look forward to more of those party debates. All right, well, I'm going to ask one more question then, since Asanga's been so <laughs> gracious. I'm sorry. Um, so you were also CEO of Engage Education. This is something we didn't really talk about. Um, and I actually went to the economics um, one from Engage and it was hugely important for me because I was from a public school and the information I gleaned from that, I went back to my teacher and I said, actually, the main thing that you told us to prepare for on the exam, actually wrong. Um, and it was really happy that I didn't. It made our whole cohort go a lot better. Um, but what I love about Engage is that you guys are trying to appeal regardless of you know, socioeconomic background. But I feel like also you're still getting people who are driven, you know, the, and these people who likely would have been relatively successful already because they've got the drive. Locally, how do you get people who are left behind in the system, you know, from the outer suburbs who don't even feel the drive to care about their ATAR or to seek out something as good as Engage? I think that because Engage as an organization is targeted at like years 11s and 12s and it's aiming to, you know, even out the playing field at that age. And you're exactly right that's giving opportunities to kids from lower socioeconomic groups or who are geographically isolated to catch up. But that doesn't address fundamental problems, and this comes back to my, my kind of point of it's the system. The system is already rigged. The VCE system is yeah. rigged against public school kids. Absolutely, it's rigged against kids who live in the country. But beyond that, so much of that, that fate, that attitude towards school has already been defined by year 11. That was something that we needed early intervention in, that we needed um, more skilled teachers, more opportunities existing from the get-go and, um, and kind of lower year levels because so much of a factor in whether or not kids continue to that age and whether or not they succeed is the amount of reading that they did with their parents at that age. And so being able to break that cycle of uneducated parents and young parents, but better than that, even having schools that are able to catch those kids before they come out of the system is huge. In terms of it at a year 11 or 12 level, I'm gonna be pretty radical in saying that I don't think private schools make sense to me. I think that a completely public school system is what we should look for in a meritocracy and that beyond that, the system's not really working for anybody right now. When I got to law school and met my partner who did go to a public school there, he was just gutting it. And I was like, wait, how do I study? What is this thing? The teacher's not gonna tell me what to say? Hang on. And, and that's shown statistically that public school students, once they get to university, are outperforming their private school counterparts because they've had to fend for themselves. They've had to fight for it up until that point. And so this is a system that, that doesn't make sense to me and we're not gonna fix that until politicians and policymakers have their kids in public schools, which is not gonna happen anytime soon because they vaguely know those statistics and we have this attitude of, oh, if you're a good parent, you make that sacrifice, you send your kid to a private school, which is bullshit. That is not an opportunity that's available to everyone and that's not how the system should be. It's not like 
buying a better car. It's literally education. It's fundamental, and everyone should have those same opportunities. So pretty radical on that perspective, but I, I definitely would love to see the system change. Beautiful. Likewise. Um, well, I've gone pretty over time already. Um, is there anything like that you'd like to add before we finish up? Loved interviewing with you guys, and thank you for the, the really detailed questions. I hope that anybody listening out there who's feeling a bit inspired just goes that extra mile and says, yep, I am going to find that thing in my gut. What is the thing that doesn't sit right with me? And make today the day. Don't make it tomorrow. Today is the day that you start looking for the opportunity to actually start changing things in that space. So from the bottom of my heart, good luck on that journey. Beautiful. All right, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to our very first episode of Lantern. That again was Morgan Kergel, and you can find more information on One Girl and their mission to educate one million girls in the show notes, as well as the authors and films that Morgan mentioned. If you did enjoy the show, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us grow and share these amazing conversations with more and more people across the globe, particularly young people. If you can't wait for more, episode two will be live across all our platforms next Sunday. That's on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or wherever you get uh, your podcasts. You can also keep up to tabs with uh, the latest content we're pushing out uh, across our social media, Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter. It's all under Project Lantern underscore, all one word, so Project Lantern underscore, and of course on our website, projectlantern.com.au. Again, we're really excited to have you on this journey in creating a global launchpad for youth-led social impact. Until next time, stay awesome.